Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. We're dispensing stories of success from across the continuum of care. I'm your host, Hillary Blackburn. Thanks for joining us to learn from leaders throughout the pharmacy industry. In this episode with healthcare attorney Todd Nova, you'll hear about many hot topics in pharmacy law from 340B to healthcare reform to the opioid epidemic and more. All right, so today we have a special guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast, Todd Nova, who is an attorney with a law firm, Hall Render, out of Wisconsin. He focuses on health law issues for healthcare providers across the country, including integrated healthcare systems, pharmacies, including retail specialty and institutional, hospitals, group purchasing organizations, and physician group practices. Todd, thanks for being a guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Thank you, Hillary. Appreciate you having me. Well, wonderful. Well, I'm so glad that you could be with us so that we can talk a little bit about pharmacy law and some important things that pharmacists need to be aware of on this topic. Um, and so, Todd, we've met uh, at some of the 340B conferences, and I know that this is an area in which you have some expertise. And for some of the 340B entities, or just for anyone um, wanting to, to know about 340B, since it's, um, there have been a lot of changes here within the, the past couple of weeks, uh, what are some of the biggest takeaways happening in terms of 340B rulings right now? Well, uh, certainly the biggest uh, event recently uh, came came last Wednesday afternoon when when CMS, the agency that administers the Medicare program, announced its final outpatient prospective payment system rule, where they said that they were going to be reducing payment um, to what we call participating 340B covered entities uh, by about 27%. So historically, for those that aren't familiar, uh, institutional uh, reimbursement for for drugs, non-packaged drugs, as they're called, which are those that are over $120 typically uh, per dose, um, are paid at ASP, average sales price, plus 6%, which is a, a, incidentally the, the same uh, payment rate in the physician office setting. The, the physician-administered drug payment really is what we have. And so what they've said is in the institutional hospital setting for, for certain groups of hospitals, really the largest uh, 340B, again, what we call participating covered entities, will be uh, incurring roughly 27% reduction uh, in payment. There are a variety of reasons that, that CMS uh, put forth in its proposed rule for why that's going to occur, but but at the end of the day, it, it is it is a final rule. It's effective January 1, and it's certainly big, big news in the 340B program world. Okay, that that's very helpful because uh, I know that that oftentimes CMS or a lot of the government agencies will kind of send out these new rulings and they're pages and pages long. And so it's very helpful for you to kind of distill some of those big takeaways for us. Um, so, Todd, how would that really impact pharmacy? Well, uh, th- right, there, there are two core classes, at least as I think of it, of pharmacy, you know, the traditional uh, community-based uh, pharmacy and then the institutional pharmacy. So, so to be honest, the, the community pharmacy and in the 340B space, they participate as, as what are called contract pharmacies. It won't impact them. The, the payment mechanisms by which 
um, 340B drugs are reimbursed in that setting are through other other statutory mechanisms, and those are the Part D as in dog program, as well as the uh, Medicare Advantage prescription drug plans, and then obviously uh, um, state uh, state Medicaid plans will will reimburse via various mechanisms. So so the traditional community based pharmacy, uh, be it be it for profit or nonprofit for that matter, will will be unaffected by this rule. Institutional pharmacies, however, those that that serve um, infusion departments or otherwise provide expensive physician-administered drugs. The most common examples of those would probably be your your uh, Remicades, um, other uh, occasionally self-administered drugs that are administered in the infusion setting, um, usually for the first uh, one or two doses if you want to have those monitored. Those institutional pharmacists are um, their their cost of goods will will remain the same. So they'll still be able to purchase those drugs at their 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 pretty significantly. Uh, discounted 340B prices. However, the reimbursement that they get for those drugs will will be re- reduced significantly. So, so directors of pharmacy and and institutional pharmacists who are working on a budget are going to have to reconcile that that reduction in payment. Um, and and these organizations are going to have to figure out where um, where that redu- reduced reimbursement uh, is gonna is gonna come out of the budget, so to speak. So so it's going to be a challenge uh, because there's not much time. Uh, the, the, the rule was was proposed late late last summer. It was just finalized last week, and it's going to be effective January 1. So not only is there going to be significant budgetary impacts, but there, there, are, there are complex uh, operational considerations that these pharmacists are going to have to work through in conjunction with uh, finance and IT. There are uh, modifiers for those that, that, again, work in the institutional space. Um, you're going to be familiar with what we call JW modifiers when you're trying to indicate if there's been waste for a drug. Um, but they're going to have to indicate that a 340B drug was used using something called a JG modifier, which is literally just two letters that get printed on a bill, which sounds simple, but it's less simple when you realize we have to figure out a way to have multiple disparate systems talking to each other to indicate that, yes, it was a 340B drug so that that gets listed on the claim. Because if it's not listed on the claim, you can't submit the bill. And if you can't submit the bill, you can't get paid. Uh, although CMS did say in its final rule, if you can't implement this, keep in mind that you have a year from the date of service under Medicare rules uh, within which you have to submit the bill. So uh, I, I think pharmacists in, in that space have a lot of, of, of pretty significant operational uh, hurdles to overcome in a, in, a, in a surprisingly short amount of time. Wow. Yes. And it sounds like they need to be hand in hand with their finance team because uh, of these different challenges associated with with budget impacts and things like that. So, gosh, yeah, a lot of uh, a quick turnaround since it's we're only about a month or so out from from January one at this taping. So uh, thanks for sharing some light on what's happening over in the 340B space. And Todd, I know you do some advising on issues related to regulatory, other reimbursement, corporate, and other compliance issues. When do companies typically seek your expertise and and what types of clients are you usually working with? You don't have to mention names if if that's confidential. No, absolutely. I appreciate that. So um, we typically get involved, or I should say, I typically uh, get involved when when there's a a goal. Um, so a goal meaning we need to uh, ramp up this service line. I think one of the things that that we're all seeing, irrespective of where you are in the care continuum, is is continued uh, consolidation and and continued push to do more with less and 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 to enhance resources. So. 
We will typically get involved when um, there are new initiatives uh, to to establish, for example, if you are a traditional, again, institutional provider trying to get more into the uh, mail order or retail specialty space is something we see quite a bit. We see quite a bit of traditional um, community-based slash retail pharmacies looking to get into more of the clinical space. Now, be that collaborating with with advanced practice clinicians or physicians in the in the quick clinic setting, or 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 more commonly uh, or or more frequently, I should say, now we're seeing uh, pharmacists as providers, right? I think most of your audience will be familiar with the fact that Medicare does not currently classify pharmacists as providers, which has a lot of implications for what they can and cannot get paid for. Nonetheless, there are mechanisms with which to use pharmacists and pharmacies as extenders, especially in the underserved and rural communities where um, they are a more efficient, uh, often lower cost and higher touch um, uh, access point where where patients but for these these points of these access points wouldn't wouldn't be seeing a, a um, I would call them a provider, even though technically under the legal sense in most states, they, they are not. So. We are often involved in trying to, to identify creative but always compliant ways uh, with establishing and enhancing access to care, but uh, you know, always, as we all see, doing doing more with with less. And and that and part of that right is coming through in what we're seeing in the bundled payment initiatives, so these these quality initiatives where payers, um, driven as is usually the case by Medicare uh, to a lesser extent, but still to an extent by Medicaid. Um, uh, uh, payment models, creative payment models to um, uh, provide for global care. So we we recently saw in the institutional setting something called CCJR, the Comprehensive Care for Joint Replacement Model, where they said basically, and I'm obviously oversimplifying here, but you're going to get X dollars for the full scope of a joint replacement. That includes, I might probably obviously, um, the the um, uh, pharmaceutical component of that. So, so the goal there is to incentivize uh, care upfront um, that that minimizes expenditures. So um, that may involve and often does involve where traditionally, right, a, a pharmacist would dispense a prescription that was written. Now we're starting to see more uh, pharmacists getting involved in the care coordination team upfront and saying, hey, you know, let's get some antibiotics on board. Um, certainly before surgery, but perhaps during during surgery. Uh, so that we're going to reduce the potential for a readmission based on an infection, um, you know. And, and, and again, Hillary, you're the pharmacist. You, you know, you would be in a much better position to speak to the to the clinical requirements. But but we are often involved in those types of, of models where where they've got to be implemented in a compliant matter. So so from a legal perspective, it raises questions about scope of practice, about permissible delegated medical acts. Um, about reimbursement, right? So, so the anticoagulation clinic is another example of what we see pretty frequently. Well, you know, some states uh, have some limited prescription, prescriptive authority. Uh, some states, uh, you've got to have it through delegated medical acts and standing orders and protocols. And then those have to be documented in different ways. But at the end of the day, we as lawyers supporting, um, supporting pharmacists and pharmacy providers of various types have to identify mechanisms and, and flag those those areas of, of risk because that's the other thing. You know, there, there are often questions of of putting a square peg in a round hole. Right? We all know that that the pharmacy laws in most states, though not all, haven't been updated in quite some time. They don't recognize modern practice. I think Florida 
is one of the more modern ones. Uh, you've seen that their, theirs was updated three or four years ago, and it's actually really helpful because they contemplate a lot of these things. So, for example, telepharmacy, remote, dispen- mm-hmm. remote dispensing in non-traditional locations like nursing homes. Um, there are all kinds of things that we work on, and it's fascinating. It's really interesting stuff. Um, but sometimes you're, you're trying to cobble together uh, disparate sources of laws into, into a, a cohesive <laughs> summary and analysis so that uh, pharmacists and, and, and care providers can do their job, which right at the end of the day is making sure parent, uh, uh, patients get appropriate care. Wow. Todd, I'm so thrilled to know how closely that uh, attorneys and pharmacists are able to kind of work together and to uh, work together for creative and compliant ways to increase access to care. So I am very thankful for your expertise in all things pharmacy and uh, for helping to provide that increased access to care. And yes, provider status is is certainly something that is on the forefront of of most pharmacists' minds. Um, telepharmacy is definitely a creative new model, um, and it, it is helpful to have uh, interpretations for these older models or, or older laws that are out there in some of the states. So very interesting stuff. Um, so Todd, do you work with any individuals or, or are they primarily or larger organizations that you were, are working with? Uh, we, we typically work with, with larger organizations in terms of you know, the individual licensure issues, uh, which, which do occur, obviously. Um, we, we, tend, we tend not to, to represent individual pharmacists as much, um, again, because of the nature, the institutional or, or um, again, it's a retail community pharmacy, whatever it may be. It's typically corporate organizations that, that we represent and we work for. Um, and so when, when there are individual licensure actions, um, at least my, my practice, uh, I tend not to work in that area. Although I do have, have some friends from, from law school and, and some other folks I know that are really, really good lawyers, good attorneys that, that do work in that space more commonly. It's, it's different enough and focused enough that, that it tends to be a, a subspecialty in the area. Sure. Yeah. No, that's very helpful because um, as a pharmacist who's licensed in multiple states, that is a big challenge in trying to keep up with all of the different regulatory changes um, and just staying on top of that. One of the best uh, resources that I've found has been Pharmacist Letter. We'll keep track of all of your different licenses and the requirements all in one place. So that's been a really helpful resource, Pharmacist Letter. Thanks for doing that. But really helpful to know that there are different areas of expertise in law um, and to seek out, you know, who has that background. Absolutely, uh, I, I think that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. And, and just like pharmacy, there there are going to be core competencies and subspecialties. Um, and, and I think it's important for anyone that's that's working with an attorney or seeking an attorney. Um, it's it's so complex and it's gotten so specialized um, that that there are there are clearly distinct uh, areas where uh, you've got to be devoted to it, um, and and you can't do it all. You know, as much as we we all probably would like to, it's just not possible. Exactly. So, Todd, you've got some extensive experience representing pharmacy clients, including retail, specialty, infusion, mail order, all of these, as well as um, caring for the underserved populations. What do you see as the biggest implications for the pharmacy industry with healthcare reform um, coming or pending? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I, and I think that goes back to what I was saying earlier about uh, coordinated and comprehensive care. Um, so, you know, we, we have a clear goal of the, the largest payers to, to and those, those are mainly government-related payers, you know, directly or indirectly. So when I say directly, I mean the, the Medicare and Medicaid fee-for-service programs. And when I say indirectly, I mean uh, the managed care programs. And more and more and more is going to managed care. And what we are going to see with healthcare reform going forward, I think, is a clear push toward bundled payments, which is to say, we need to incentivize efficiencies. And the best way to do that is, and, and, and I think the government has said, the best way uh, to incentivize and encourage improved care is to, to a certain extent, to let the free market operate, which is to say, we're going to provide a set amount that we believe is reasonable and fair compensation. And we think, and what they've said is from an actuarial perspective, they believe that the uh, in the in the aggregate, it will result in a reasonable and fair profit for those entities. But that in certain cases, you will lose money. And in certain cases, you'll make more than others. But their goal is to incentivize uh, those efficiencies, which which again goes to what I was saying earlier about um, uh, reducing readmissions, reducing infection. And so from a pharmacist and a pharmacy perspective, more and more pharmacists are going to become core uh, core participants in, in the care team. And, and I'd be interested in your thoughts, Hillary, uh, about where that's been historically, but at least I see in my practice more and more pharmacist involvement in that space. Now, whether it's affirmative and it's clear how they get paid for it, or we've got to figure it out, that's, that's becoming the case. We work with one client and, and they, it's, it's a hospital system, academic medical center. And they recently told me how many pharmacists they have on staff. It's well over 150. I couldn't believe it. And they said, well, that's because we have them in with all the with all the care planning teams because they're talking about what they've seen, right? And to me, it seems, and again, I'm not a clinician. I'm curious to hear your thoughts, but it seems to me that if, if you're going to have people keeping up in best of best of class, uh, state, of, state of the art, state of the industry, um, uh, drug treatment regimens, the pharmacist is going to be in the best position to do that. They're going to the conferences. They're reading the trade organization magazines. They're reading the studies, right? So I think going forward under post-Affordable Care Act, whatever that may be, there's no question um, that, they've, they, that they, meaning the payers, the government payers, have seen success, demonstrable success in terms of bundled payments. And so I think that if, if anything, it significantly will increase the importance and the role of, of, of the pharmacist. Yeah, no, those are some great points. And I I do see that pharmacists have have really been establishing themselves as a key component of the interdisciplinary healthcare team. They're they are providing some really great expertise in some of those gaps along the way. So transitions of care, that's a really great place where patients, when they're discharged from the hospital, uh, they're often given new medications, discontinued medications, or maybe they can't afford medications. And so having a pharmacist there is is really helpful. Um, looking at, at other social determinants, uh, transportation, housing, food. Uh, I think pharmacy could be in a really great position to help um, with some of those uh, components as well, along with with social workers and things. They That's a great area. I think with, you know, payment is definitely uh, a, a challenge still for pharmacy and, and there is legislation uh, 
you've already mentioned kind of uh, pharmacy has has an opportunity, particularly in the underserved areas. And there is legislation out right now that is being sponsored um, on the Hill for pharmacists as providers specifically in those areas. And in Tennessee, uh, 94 out of the 95 counties are considered medically underserved and, and all of the counties in Mississippi where I grew up are considered underserved. So I think that they're there are definitely great ways to utilize the expertise and training. I think even uh, Congressman Buddy Carter, who is the only pharmacist represented on Capitol Hill from Georgia, has even said that we're the, the most underutilized player on the healthcare team. So I think that, that as you just mentioned, that that there's a lot of opportunity to have pharmacy come in and, and really play a big role in all of the the different ways that the um, changes post Affordable Care Act are really opening up and and you know pharmacogenomics and there's really just just kind of um, the future is endless for ways that that pharmacy can make an impact so it's really exciting uh, something else that's kind of a, a hot topic is uh, certainly the opioid epidemic and I think that um, pharmacists getting standing orders with naloxone um, is probably a great area too where uh, we can play a role in helping to uh, solve a little bit of that that epidemic. Um, I'm sure you've played a key role in helping these health systems and, and other pharmacy entities create uh, great strategies to be compliant in that. Could you share a little bit more about uh, some of the work that you've probably done within the opioid space. Sure, absolutely, and I, I think that that's one of the biggest the biggest areas. So, so we are often brought in to to help and to help ensure against uh, diversion, obviously. But in particular, with respect to naloxone, making sure with, we're complying with the various state laws regarding access. So, so whether it is a standing order, uh, whether it is working with. Um, with the state boards of pharmacy uh, to to encourage limited prescriptive authority uh, for for pharmacists, um, we as an industry are obviously getting more comfortable uh, with naloxone, like we have with with vaccines. Um, you know, I think we're starting to see pharmacists, um, and, and certainly it's important with the op- in the opioid uh, space, and this, given that the, the epidemic that we've got currently going on. Uh, but but it's not just that. It's a broader public health benefit that I think people are starting to realize that these points of of, of contact are are really an asset to our communities. I mean, you're you're getting widespread vaccinations. There's a huge public health benefit. Um, there there access to the the naloxone issue obviously um, is really important. So part of what what we need to do though is, and you were talking about licensure earlier. While we don't necessarily represent individual pharmacists in terms of licensure actions that may occur, one of the things we do uh, work with quite a bit is making sure that that the the pharmacists that work for the organizations or employed by the organizations that that we work for um, are doing things in a compliant manner. Because at the end of the day, we are keenly aware that a a PIC, uh, a pharmacist in charge or a managing pharmacist, again, in the institutional setting or or in the the community setting, either way, that their, their license is at risk. We need to help them do their job, and that includes ensuring that naloxone uh, and other other drugs, vaccines or otherwise, are dispensed in a manner that benefits the public health, but also that protects um, protects their license and that they're appropriately advised of the risks and their their obligations. And so, one of the things that I love about my job is that we get to help care providers 
um, provide a legitimate public uh, public health benefit, what, whatever whatever that may be. So, you know, in the in the opioid space, it, it, it's it's interesting. You know, I, I think that. Um, it, it breaks your heart when you hear about everything that's going on. I'm glad that I can play a very, very small part um, in hopefully addressing that. But, you know, my, my practice is, um, uh, I guess I would call it a little myopic at times. Um, you know, it's hard to, to see the forest for the trees, um, but someone's got to do it. So, you know, you know I, I look at the details, you know, we look at what can you do, how do you do it, but, but where where I need help and what we rely on as lawyers helping pharmacists and, and, and pharmacy providers and suppliers is, is to help, help us help you, right? Let us know what the goal is. Let us know what you need to do and let us know what you want to do. And we will figure out a way, a way to make that happen. And with the opioid epidemic that's going on, um, you know, I, I think I'm like any other human being that sees what's going on. I, I, I hope to be able to help um, the, 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 the providers and the pharmacists that we work with you know, make a dent in it, if, if nothing else. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So Todd, speaking of, um, I guess, kind of along the lines of, of pain and then ways that pharmacy may be involved, um, a, a topic that's come up uh, within Tennessee that is uh, being going to be brought up for uh, legislative review in the the spring 2018 session is actually around medical cannabis. So there have been about 30 states across the country that have completely differing uh, versions of of what medical cannabis looks like. Is there pharmacy involvement? Is there not? Um, the, the current language that it looks like Tennessee is looking at is to have pharmacy provide counseling, um, which may not have any type of implications, um, for their license since, uh, they won't be doing any of the dispensing, which, um, I guess there might be some concerns with it being a schedule one still federally if pharmacy was playing a role in the dispensing. Have you, have you had any experience or, or exposure to the medical cannabis topic or, or would you be able to share any kind of initial thoughts on that? Um, yes, that is a, it, it's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult topic. And, and I think Hillary, you, you really honed in on the issue immediately there, which is, the the distinction between federal law and state law. Um, just because a state makes it legal uh, doesn't mean that the federal government has. And um, I think that pharmacies and pharmacists need to understand in particular implications for DEA registrations and what that may, may or may not mean. Now, it can be very fact-specific. The example that you gave um, depends on the exact implementation of that model and what what counseling does or or doesn't mean, uh, but the DEA guidance that that is that is currently out there regarding DEA registration say that um, anyone uh, any any um, employees that possess, sell, use, or divert controlled substances um, uh, will become the are are subject to potential adverse action for the DEA registration. So there's an enforcement. Uh, discretion out there, whether that will or won't be. But um, with respect to providing that counseling, I think it's important for state representatives and the state laws that are that are constructed to 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 do that 
in the light of the federal requirements and to understand and reconcile those two and to provide some meaningful guidance in terms of what's anticipated. Because in, unless and until there are fundamental changes with the DEA um, and, and also with, with other federal laws, I think, I think it remains a difficult proposition. Um, you know, the, the other, and you've probably heard about this, there are challenges as well, uh, perhaps bigger challenges with, with respect to, to um, the money that's involved. And, you know, Colorado setting up, setting up its own banking system uh, because it can't be done in an FDIC insured bank. Um, I, I don't typically work in that space uh, in terms of devising what, what they can and can't do. Uh, again, I think because in my practice, most of the, all of the pharmacies that I work with have DEA registrations. And, and for that reason, I think it's pretty clear that it's a challenge at this point. We'll, we'll, see, we'll see where it goes. But with respect to just providing direct counseling, um, again, I, I think it's a, difficult, it's a difficult question because that does implicate um, a variety of, of, of federal laws and, and then also um, scope of practice considerations. And that's going to be pretty dependent on, on your state and, and what your state does or doesn't consider medical practice uh, and, 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 and what types of advice a pharmacist can and cannot give. So, so I know that that's not the most productive answer in the world, but as you know, it's, you know on, at the end of the day, it's a pretty, it's a pretty complicated issue. And a lot of what what pharmacists have to reconcile, navigate right every day is is the intersection between federal and state laws, payers, PBMs, PSAOs, and the acronyms go on. So you know, hopefully uh, that at least sheds some light on the issue. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's helpful uh, just to get some some additional education around that space because as as more and more states are looking at that, I think that people just need to be educated about, you know, what are the risks and involved or what, what regulations do you need to follow to, to protect and maintain your, not only your pharmacist license, but if you are affiliated with a pharmacy um, to maintain that as well. So that was, that was very helpful just to, to give a little bit more insight from a legal perspective. Sure. And, 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 uh, and I might just add, add one thing. I was listening to the radio the other day and and uh, here in Wisconsin, where I'm located, they're talking about proposing a bill and, and they had one of the sponsors on. And, and this this representative said, we're looking at this bill to, to make marijuana legal. And um, I wanted to respond to that and say, you know, it's, it's much more complicated than that. Right. And, and, and again, I think that's the takeaway from this. Just because you're a single state law may say that it's legal doesn't mean, number one, that it's been reconciled with other state statutes. Number two, that it's reconcilable with um, your professional practice uh, regulations or administrative code provisions. And then number three, you've got the federal overlay uh, in particular from, from the DEA. So um, just because one, one part of the government may say that it's okay, um, there are a lot of complexities that are associated with it. Sure. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. So Todd, is our final question uh, something that is is kind of top of mind for our organization being a wholesale distributor is the DSCSA or the Drug Supply Chain and Security Act. Um, that's going to impact uh, not only manufacturers, wholesalers, and pharmacies. Uh, how, are, how are you able to advise pharmacies um, to 
to get ready and to prepare for that. Now I know pharmacy is, is the last stop. So manufacturers are kind of having to gear up for that now. And then, and then the wholesalers. And so, so pharmacies being the T3 or the furthest down the pipe, they've got a longer time to implement and be ready to uh, prepare for serialization and, and it might change a lot, but um, are you able to give kind of any guidance for pharmacies or pharmacists who are, are interested in that? Yeah, absolutely. And and if you're if you're in the T three space, I, I think you need to make sure at the end of the day that you are working with reputable drug distributors who are maintaining that track and trace information. Um, and and when they when you look at your drug distri- uh, drug distributor agreement uh, again, whether that's through a PSAO or or direct with with a distributor, you want to make sure that that you have a licensed and reputable distributor who is who is warranting that they're going to maintain that information. And 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 any any again reputable distributor will will do that. And so um, believe it or not, there are some uh, distributors out there that are not. I think it's one of the things that we've seen more and more. Um, it, it's probably it, it's definitely more common in the traditional pharmacy space. Um, but there are some distributors out there that are smaller that may not be as up to speed in terms of what the DSCSA requirements are and what they do and don't require. Um, in particular, um, there are some exceptions for uh, for wholly owned uh, corporate subsidiaries. There are other mechanisms, and so uh, there are other mechanisms that that some distributors may point to to say, "Oh, you know, we don't necessarily need to maintain the information." Although, to be fair, the distributors that 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 I have worked with are all pretty up to speed on it uh, in terms of what their requirements are. So, so to answer your question, though, in, in the, for the pharmacist or, or the individual in the supply chain who's responsible for sourcing those drugs, make sure you understand and can confirm compliance uh, with the track and trace requirements, because at the end of the day, uh, if you receive that those drugs without that information, you're receiving adulterated and misbranded drugs, which, as you know, Hillary, um, is 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 technically a, a criminal offense. And if a patient, God forbid, is is injured by a drug that that isn't traceable, that's where the issues are are gonna are gonna crop up. So it's the, it's the adage, right? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That is the the purpose and 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 the point of the DSCSA, which was obviously implemented in the wake of NECC. So it's just something to be to be aware of. So I'm glad you you raised it. Thanks for doing that. Yeah. Well, Todd, thank you so much for sharing all of this great information with us. We had a lot of hot topics that have a lot of legal implications, and it was incredibly helpful to have your um, take and your perspective on um, how that might impact pharmacy. So thanks so much for being a guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast, Todd. Thank you, Hillary. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk to Your Pharmacist, produced by the Pharmacy Advisory Group. If you liked this episode, let us know by subscribing to the podcast, rating, and reviewing it. Share it with friends. And if you want to be a guest or know a pharmacist leader who has a great story to tell, connect with me, Hillary Blackburn, on LinkedIn and check out our Facebook page, Pharmacy Advisory Group, for updates on new podcasts. Thanks for listening. 